Good evening, family. Or oh, hello, hello, hello. Let me retract that good evening. So if you haven't heard, I've started on a new platform called Bullhorn. So Bullhorn has a grant, right? And so they say if you share their platform, then the more you share, the more it increases your possibilities of winning. So the platform was free. It is a podcast and I can go on just like here on Anchor 24-7, anytime I choose. Unfortunately, the time has been of the essence. So tonight, I shared on my studies of the Holy Scripture and I reached out and asked for some help. So if you have a chance to listen to it, I think I figured it out. I was trying to figure out the Holy Scriptures, within the Holy Scriptures, the difference between the Wesleyan Pentecostal section, sect. So the Christian, both are Christian, but one is the Wesleyan sect and one was the Pentecostal, contemp- Pentecostal contemporary sect. And the four scriptures that they are bound, bound by. So I think I figured that one out. So now... If you have a chance to listen, go back and listen. But now I'm moving on to the eternal Godhead. This is the four square study doctrine number two. Article two, the eternal Godhead. We believe that there is but one true and living God, maker of heaven and earth and all that is in them, the Alpha and Omega. Whoever was and is and shall be, time without end. Amen. That he is infinitely holy, mighty, tender, loving, and glorious. Worthy of all possible love and honor, confidence and obedience, majesty, dominion, and might. Both now and forever. And that in the unity of the Godhead, there are three. Equal in every divine perfection, executing distinct but harmonious offices in the great work of redemption. So... Just as I asked with the Holy Scriptures to help me dig in and get clarity. And guess what? Nine times out of ten, you don't have to say a word. We're just going to allow Holy Spirit to work. But it's going to be bring clarity for me as I study. And it's going to bring clarity for you. So if you're not already there, have a seat. Get a pen and paper. Relax and open your mind. And let's get ready to receive. Let's download. Pray that the Holy Spirit will download. Download so that as we learn this tonight, we'll never forget it. That it will be embedded in our mind, our body, and our spirit. Because this is the Godhead and this is the eternal Godhead. As we are leaders here, we need to know this. So Father, embed it in us so that we will know. We don't have to be Bible-toting, scripture-quoting, but we want that right relationship with you, not tradition, not religion, but your holy word. So embed it in us. In Jesus' name, I pray that anyone listening under the sound of my voice as we study tonight will feel Holy Spirit move in a way in their lives, that their lives, their, their soul, will, spirit will quicken and they'll feel his presence but they also feel Holy Spirit move within them as never before. So increase us, elevate us, and just love us. The only the way that you know how to, not man, but our eternal.
eternal Godhead. In Jesus' name, I pray and I thank you for elevation. Amen. All right, the Father, whose glory is so exceedingly bright that mortal man cannot look upon his face and live, but whose heart was so filled with love and pity for his lost and sin-lighted children that he freely gave his only begotten son to redeem and reconcile them unto himself. The son coexisted and co-eternal with the father who conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary took upon himself the form of man bore our sins, carried our sorrows, and by the shedding of his precious blood upon the cross of Calvary, purchased redemption for all that would believe upon him. Then bursting the bonds of death and hell, rose from the grave and ascended on high, leading captivity captive, that as the great mediator between God and man, he might stand at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for those whom he laid down his life, the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Godhead, the Spirit of the Father, shed abroad, omnipotent, omnipresent, performing an inexpressibly important mission upon earth, convicting of sin of righteousness and of judgment, drawing sinners to the Savior, rebuking, pleading, searching, comforting, quickening, teaching, glorifying, woo, baptizing and enduring with power from on high those who yield to his tender ministrations, preparing them for the great day of the Lord's appearing. And I'm going to tell you just a few scriptures. You can find all this in. All right, Isaiah 43.10, Isaiah 44.8, Exodus 33.20, John 3.16, Job 38.4-7, Matthew 1.23, Isaiah 43.11, 1 Timothy 2 and 5, Ephesians 2 and 18, 1 John 5 and 7, John 15.26, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, Matthew 28, 19, Romans 8, 11, John 16, 7 through 14, and John 1, 1 through 3, Introduction, the doctrine of the nature of God, as true as an essential and distinctive aspect of the Christian faith. It is essential because it describes who Christians are worship. So I hope you have on your seatbelt. Like I said, get your pen and paper, open your mind, and let's get ready to dig in. Biblical and historical background. The primary purpose of this section is to orient the candidate to the origin and the development of the doctrine of the Trinity within historic Christianity that helps frame and give context to Foursquare's position in relation to the larger Christian tradition. Biblical foundations. A ministers, as ministers and leaders, one must come to terms with at least four sets of pages from Scripture that provide the basis for the Christian understanding of God. While the following is by no means exhaustive, this section 
presents important themes and concepts. Firstly, there are texts in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that emphasize that there is one God. Some texts from the Old Testament underscore that YHY, excuse me, YHWH alone ought to be worshipped by Israel because of his saving actions through the Exodus and his relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Alongside these texts, there is often recognition that Yahweh, Y-H-Y-W-H, is unique and is distinct. And I should always, I apologize for not pronouncing it first, saying it out outright first before just giving you the letters. Unique and distinct from the supposed gods of other peoples. In contrast to these gods, he is living, is not sound, acts to save and forgive the sins of his people, and cannot be reduced to idols of stone or wood, needing neither a people and can, excuse me, a house or anything from his creation. Another set of texts emphasizes that he alone is the creator of heaven and earth. He has bef- he was before his creation and is therefore not creation as creator he needed only to speak creation into existence thus all other supposed gods are not gods there is only one true god the god of israel and he is holy different from creation taken together these texts indicates yahweh is the only god worthy of worship because he is the only true god building on this foundation the New Testament affirms there is only one God and at times states plainly God is one or there is only one God. The second set of texts emphasizes the threeness of God using the titles Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The activities and other titles attributed to each are those the Bible highlights as unique to God. Thus, Father, Son, and Spirit create and sustain creation, save, make holy, and create and sustain the people of God. The use of the names Father, Son, and Spirit as the subjects of these and other personal actions signifies the reason each is considered a divine person and not some generic or impersonal force. Additionally, biblical texts in which the Father, Son and Holy Spirit are all present, show that the divine persons cannot be collapsed into each other. Additionally, biblical scenes such as Jesus' baptism, in which the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all present, and such as an active show that the divine persons are distinct, an example of both common an inseparable action, and yet the distinct way the Father, Son, and Spirit work can be seen in how human beings become children of God. Galatians 4, 4-7 states that to make us his children and his heirs, the Father sends the Son who becomes incarnate to redeem us and sends the Spirit of his Son into our hearts to call out, Abba, Father. Thus the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit 
as eternally divine, eternally distinct, and yet eternally one, accomplish our salvation and make us children of the living God. The third set of texts highlights that God is personal. While God is creator and not creation, this does not mean he does not personally care for his creation. Instead, his holy otherness of, transcend of transcendence is what enables him to be intimately present, to love and to bring justice impartially. The relational and personal characteristics of God are found throughout the biblical narrative. God gives his name in Exodus 3, emphasizing his presence to Moses and his people, but also states his desire to be known by the nations. God often announces himself as the God of particular individuals. For example, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and people, God of Israel underscoring his history of covenantal relationships and actions on their behalf, but also stating his intentions that all of creation come to know him, see his glory, or be blessed. God is love and invites us in communion with himself. While God is not creation, he nonetheless acts personally, compassionately, lovingly, and sacrificially on behalf of individuals and communities and makes his personal presence and care available. Additionally, names such as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit of God and Spirit of Christ are relational titles further emphasizing the relational and personal nature of God. Fourthly, a set of texts emphasize that the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Jesus as the Son and Word of the Father often highlights his unity in will and purpose with the Father, such that to see excuse me, such that to see the Son is to see the Father. Likewise, wow, this is, this is just, likewise, the Spirit will remind God's people of the word of Jesus, do the Father, gives to the Son, the Son to the Spirit, and the Spirit to us. To grieve the Spirit, is to grieve God, a statement reiterated in both Testaments. Jesus also affirms that he came to fulfill the laws given in the Old Testament, not to abandon them. Paul affirms that faith was the basis of Abraham's relationship with God, and the same faith is the basis of relationship with God under the new covenant through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ Echoing the name given to Moses at the burning bush, Yahweh, states that before Abraham was, I am. While this does not mean that we are required to do everything prescribed in the law of Moses, 
it does mean that we worship the same God who gave the law, became incarnate to fulfill it and empowers his people today to live according to his purposes through the new covenant. An historical overview. As early prayers and writings show, early Christians worshipped in a Trinitarian fashion, but how to understand and articulate God's oneness and threeness as seen in the biblical witness took time and was a special focus of theological reflection in the first four centuries of the Christian church. As a result of the rapid reception of both Jewish and non-Jewish people into the church and in contrast to popular Greco-Roman understandings of the gods, physical philosophical accounts of the divine and various other ancient Near Eastern understandings of the divine, it was important to highlight the distinctiveness of the Christian God. A key understanding highlighted early on was the Bible's affirmation that God is creator and not creation. This affirmation did not mean that creation was evil. It is good, but God is above and holy other than creation. This reality meant that early Christian theologians had to think carefully about how language about God ought to be understood. Paving a way between agnosticism, there is a God, but we can't know anything about him, an overconfident rationalization, we can know God as God knows himself. They sought to affirm that God's nature cannot be fully grasped by human reason nor fully captured by human language. Instead, knowing God requires recognizing our, cre- our creationally limits. Repenting from sin, stretching our love and imagination, and depending on God's self-revelation. Thus, Christian language and understanding drawn from his self-revelation in history, especially the incarnation, can communicate real and trustworthy truths when faithfully discerned, understood, and sought from Scripture. A second key, understanding came from reflecting on the Bible's portrayal of the Father's relationship, first to the Son and then the Spirit, amid debates within church. Since Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all do activities that are unique to God, They affirmed that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all divine. Again, to distinguish between other understandings of the divine and the Christian God or misunderstandings of the biblical witness, they affirmed that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-equal in rank and dignity and 
as the one God worthy of worship. The Father, Son, and Spirit are not a hierarchy of divine beings, but rather share one and the same essence, power, activity, and will. To capture this feature and further affirm there is one God, they used terms such as one essence or of the same essence to capture the biblical reality of God's threeness. And in addition to highlighting the relational titles of father and son, they affirm that while there was one God, there are three divine persons or substances, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Utilizing terms from John's Gospel to highlight distinctions between the persons, the Son is described as eternally begotten of, and the Spirit as eternally proceeding from the Father. Thus, a common affirmation is one essence, three persons, or one God, three persons, or even one Godhead, three persons, as the Declaration of Faith reflects. This language can be seen as early as the first Immensical Council in Nicaea in 325 AD and was used to defend the creed of 325 and explain the creed produced at the second Immensical Council in 381 AD. The Nicene Constantinopolitan excuse me, Constantinopolitan creed. Eventually, this language was drawn upon to understand and articulate the doctrines related to the person of Christ in subsequent eusimical councils. Ephesus, 431 AD. Classidon, 451 AD. Constable, 533 AD, 553 AD, excuse me, and Constable 681 AD. Since one of the Trinity, the Son and Word of God, shared life from all eternity with the Holy Spirit and the Father and became incarnate as Jesus of Nazareth, it is inescapable that the doctrine of the Trinity and the Incarnation are linked. It was the self-same will of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy, and the Spirit that the Son take on our humanity, being born of the Holy Spirit and his mother Mary, live his life, suffer unto death by crucifixion, be raised and ascend to conquer death and corruption, and make those who believe in his name both children of God and co-heirs of his eternal kingdom. It is by grace 
we have been adopted into the truant life of God. Trinity or triune eventually become shorthand for referring to the Christian God as articulated in this in these creeds and early Christian communities. For the most part, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and Protestant churches, Lutheran, Reformed, Church of England, and so on, including Pentecostals and Charismatics churches, have recognized these statements as significant landmarks. In some traditions, the Nicene Constipolitan Creed is a binding statement recited in worship and other significant rites. Early Pentecostals affirmed the Trinity, but not without debate, as the split between oneness, Pentecostalism, and the Assemblies of God in the early 1900s demonstrated. As a result of this early theological debate, many Pentecostals sought to affirm the historic Christian understanding of God as triune. So here we go. Emphasis and distinctives in the article of faith. With the benefit of many centuries of Christian reflection on scripture and the doctrine of God, along with the Foursquare Declaration of Faith, we can affirm that we worship one God in three eternally distinctive and divine persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God from all eternity has been both one and three. While the divine persons are distinct, they are inseparable and are the one God. And while there is one God, the divine persons cannot be collapsed or confused. The one God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit creates, reveals, redeems, saves, and sanctifies. The mere memorizing and parroting of formula are not the goal. Instead, the goal is to understand and communicate the work of God in history and scripture. Furthermore, our final goal is to experience the communion, love, and freedom that our triune God gives so that we can in turn love him and share in God's love through Jesus Christ for others by the power of the Spirit. Consequently, views that emphasize the oneness of God at the expense of the threeness do not adequately account for the biblical passages that highlight the distinct and eternal divine persons of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Views that emphasize the threeness of God at the expense of the oneness do not adequately account for the biblical passages that highlight the eternal unity of the divine persons and the affirmation that there is only one true God. Likewise, views that attempt to subordinate 
the Son, and Spirit to each other or to the Father also do not adequately account for the biblical passages that show the Father, Son, and Spirit are all divine working in a unity of divine action to accomplish revelation, redemption, salvation, and sanctification. Additionally, views that too sharply contrast the portrayal of God in the Old Testament and New Testament do not adequately account for those biblical passages that show the unchangeable unity of will, purpose, and work of the Father Son, and Spirit as the one God of his people across the ages. Additionally, views that collapse or confuse the creator-creation distinction such as pantheism do not not adequately account for those biblical passages that highlight God's transcendence, transcendence, since God is also personal, invested in relationships with human beings and love, it is essential to affirm that his transcendence does not detract from his relational and intimate involvement with his creation. On the contrary, his transcendence allows him to be present and to love in ways that his create his creatures cannot because of creaturely limitations or because of sin. That the God of the Bible who is holy and holy other than his creation would freely choose to create to become part of his creation by becoming human live a human life yet without sin and die for us and our salvation demonstrates God's extraordinary love. Finally, while Christians continue to reflect on scripture to understand and love more deeply the triune God, there is nevertheless an element of mystery that that human reason and comprehension cannot exhaust inspiring awe and worship and a recognition of our creaturely limits. Our knowledge is as a reflection in a mirror and this this will only be alleviated when we see him face to face. Thus, language and analogies used to explain how God is one and three while needed and valuable at communicating aspects of triune existence can never comprehensively capture the Trinity. Mindful of this reality and the creator-creation distinction, careful consideration ought to be given to how we understand and explain the term person when applied to the Father, Son, and Spirit allowing scripture to chasten and shape our understanding. Similarly, careful consideration and scriptural engagement ought also 
to be exercised in our explanations of how creation, images, the Trinity, and any prescription we may offer concerning how we ought to imagine the Trinity in our relationships and communities. Pastoral Considerations Applications Our understanding of the Trinity has significant impact on how the church views its relationship with God and one another. The eternal Godhead sets the culture of community through which we find our identity and relationship. Daryl Johnson, in Experiencing the Trinity, says, At the center of the universe in a relationship is a relationship. That is the most fundamental truth I know. At the center of the universe is a community. It is out of that relationship that you and I were created and redeemed. And it is for that relationship that you and I were created and redeemed. And it turns out that there is a threefoldness to that relationship. It turns out that the community is a trinity. The center of reality is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This essential understanding of God points us toward the heart of the great commandment. Refresh your mind with the thoughts in the opening introduction of these guides. The way we view God and everything in the world, considering God impacts the way we live. The doctrine of the eternal Godhead is a mystery, but one that as is sought to understand reveals the richness of an imminent and transcendent God who desires to be known. All right, family, thank you so much for hanging in there with me. And I pray that the prayer that we said in the beginning has been fulfilled, that everything that we've shared tonight has opened your mind, your body, and your spirit to receive the Holy Trinity. Even if you've received and been saved and spirit-filled before, I pray that the Godhead, the Spirit, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Triune, the whole, the, the, oh, Jesus, yes, the Holy Trinity, that as we seek time and time again to understand we are creations of the creator. And it's really not for us to understand, but just to believe that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three beings in one. So I pray and I thank you for joining me tonight. Shalom.